Vino Fabulum Podcast. I'm Laura, and I'm a single co-host interviewing today. I'm thrilled to be talking with a woman with wine and stories from higher ed, specifically our guest, Dr. Crystal Clayton. She's going to talk a little bit about how gamification plays into her teaching and discuss a little bit about her pedagogical practices that I think are fascinating. So welcome to the In Vino Fab Podcast. Um, Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I um, I feel really honored to be able to do this interview with you. And it was so great to meet you at my keynote speech. Right. So I felt the need to introduce um, and bring in this guest, uh, Crystal, just to talk about everything she's doing. Besides her being amazing, let me tell you about her bio first, and I'll tell you how we met. So... We're thrilled. A newly hired clinical associate professor in the Department of Psychology is Dr. Crystal Clayton. She brings with her over a decade of teaching experience of 13 different courses for students ages 16 to 82. Crystal has taught abroad on Maine and regional campuses, face-to-face and online, and her pedagogy is now coming to UNT this fall, 2018. So we're so thrilled to have her join us because she brings with her experience um, different methods of pedagogy and gamification and thinking about being more collaborative and interactive for teaching and learning. So I think it'll be received by her students, um, our colleagues, and I met her at the UNT Teaching and Learning Forum this past spring when she came and did a applied version of what she does for students to staff and faculty who came to that um, keynote talk, plenary talk. It was really interactive, so it was a, a mix of what I assume she only does in her classroom. So um, Crystal hopes to work with faculty teaching fellows to increase student engagement, retention, scholarship, and teaching and applied learning at my campus at the University of North Texas. So welcome. Great to have you on the pod. Thank you. Well, I also I'm really knew, excited to be here. Right, and I knew to invite you because you're like slide two or three at the University Teaching Forum was like a wine or wine glass, and I was like, oh yeah, she's coming. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I find that I can connect wine to just about anything, um, and maybe that's because I have wine with just about everything. <laughs> wine pairs with. Well, with life, so I agree. And I guess we'll start off with what what are you drinking this evening and or what's usually on your uh, paired table plate when you are out with colleagues, friends, family? Um, this evening, I'm drinking the Mum Napa uh, Rosé. It's the, the sparkling wine. Really good. Lovely. And when I have people over, I often like to mix a little bit of uh, elderflower liqueur with Ooh. a glass of your regular extra dry champagne and uh, garnish it with a little berry. And that's typically the cocktail I serve when I have people over. It's great for summer. That sounds fancy, and I will invite myself to your house. for a long time. No, that's great. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. um, I bartended to put myself through school, so, yeah, thank you. Good, good. Um, t- tonight we're going to chat a little bit about uh, things that you're doing, but beyond your intro – um, you're coming in from the University of Kentucky previously, and you've been doing some amazing things there that I happen to Google search besides teaching law, psychology of law, and eyewitness testimony that I've learned about. Um, you helped a dental clinic and inmates with dental care. Is this true? Oh, yeah. So at Western Kentucky, I was really lucky in that I taught on Maine and regional campuses, mm-hmm. and that forced me to be really innovative for, you know, field trips and get speakers. 
So a field trip I started setting up was one where my psych and law students would tour the Barron County Detention Center. Mm-hmm. And the person who was running that facility at the time, Matt Mutter, was really open to collaborating with the university. And then I also uh, met Dean Chumbler, who happens to be my partner, and we moved here together to be at UNT. And during um, a lot of conversations we had about research, I told him I was interested in improving dental care for inmates. Before I started touring these facilities, I did not know that the dental care that inmates would receive was a tooth pull, and that's it. And they weren't allowed to floss. And if they did have a tooth pulled, then they couldn't get really any painkiller except for a few Tylenol. And that really broke my heart. So I paired with uh, Dean Chumbler, who at the time was the dean of a college that had a dental hygiene school. And so we started sending dental hygiene students into the Barron County Detention Center to clean inmates' teeth and to teach them more about dental care. And I collected data on that all last semester, and now I'm working on the analysis, and I've been reading a lot of their open-ended responses about how they felt um, in terms of what it was like to treat an inmate. And I really got some great feedback the feedback I was hoping for, which was wonderful, and that they thought, you know what, inmates are people too, and they deserve health care. And helping them take care of their teeth is something that's important. And so a lot of those students said that they wouldn't think twice now about working with or for inmates and that they wanted to do more things like volunteering to help inmates have better health care. And so those are just kind of the outcomes that I always hope for is that people really drop those stereotypes when it comes to um, inmates. And they also change their mind about who does and who doesn't deserve health care, because in my opinion, we all do. And that was um, a really rewarding experience that I had at, at you know, WKU. And I'm hoping I can bring some of that to UNT as well. I think your bio is correct in saying collaborative and interactive for how you teach and what your students to learn. I'd also add... Yes. Uh, humanitarian to that description. So you can beef that up on your bio. Um, I think that's amazing because you're actually thinking about um, not just your own discipline and domain of psychology, but you're thinking about what are the implications across a few things, legal, um, systems Mm -hmm. and policy-wide, also dental, um, and yeah, humanitarian care. And I think that's really neat that you're you're connecting what your world of work is and letting your learners know it goes beyond just what you study and there's bigger implications for what we're doing. So I think that's great. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really trying to um, get to as many students as I can and really try to turn this around. And by this, I mean how we look at people who are incarcerated and there's just so many of them. And I was really pleased by the Chronicle of Higher Education Um, their most recent uh, magazine came out. And on the very front of it, the cover story reads, Americans prison problem, question mark, are universities doing enough? And that really hits home with me because I find that we can talk about it. We can, you can read about it. um, You can sit in my classroom and I can give you the statistics. But if you don't experience what it's like to sit with an inmate, to care for an inmate and to understand, they're probably a lot like you. They just happen to get caught 
or they were, you know, vilified because of the color of their skin or the language that they speak. I find that that is really a great way to change how these students perceive whether or not they want to maybe offer them a chance later on in life. What if you are going to be a manager at a company and someone comes to you and they're looking for a job and they have to tick that little box that they actually have a a history of incarceration or that they've committed a felony? Do you not hire that person? And I know that that's a, a pretty hot topic, but... I also know that the best place to discuss these hot topics, in my opinion, is in a classroom where it's a safe space and students have the ability to exercise their opinions and maybe change those opinions if need be. Absolutely. And I know that you're in the field of psychology, but you've kind of narrowed in on an interesting area around perceptions, um, around the legal system. What kind of drew you into this kind of domain or specific kind of niche area in your discipline? Well, that's a, an interesting question in that it's very personal. Um, when I was going to school, I had a stalker and this person actually broke into my home and took a lot of personal items, but did not take credit cards, um, anything of real value. And when I, you know, called the police department for help, I got a a lot of mixed feedback. Was your door locked? Um, You're a bartender. Do you flirt with anybody? So I got a lot of victim blaming and that really took me by surprise. And as I went through the whole process, this person who broke into my home and stalked me had four different attorneys. Um, Two of them happened to die during the process. Uh, Another one was an alcoholic And so then I started wondering about what's happening with our, you know, our criminal defense attorneys that are appointed by the state. What's what's happening with them maybe in terms of psychological disorders or stress. And then when I actually was able to testify as an eyewitness, um, there were questions that were asked of me that I didn't think were very fair. And then I had to wonder what kind of defense does this person have a right to get? Um, just because I'm the victim, does that mean that this person should be automatically thrown in jail for the longest amount of time possible? So as a victim, I was very biased in the way that I looked at it. And as I started to go through the rest of my doctorate and I started to teach classes in social psychology and I had more interactions with people who had been incarcerated before, I really had to question myself. And I really had to step outside of myself and think about what's it like for the person who actually commits the crime? Is there a chance for rehabilitation? Do we even think really about rehabilitation? Or is it more about um, locking this person away for as long as possible? And when this person finally gets out, what chance do they have at a different life, at making different choices? So I really started burying myself in the literature and I was surprised to find that we don't really do a great job at rehabilitation. And when someone does serve their time, they get released, but we still treat them as if they should be continuing to serve that time. We don't offer them equal access to jobs. They have a difficult, if impossible, attempt at finding housing. 
if they need any type of medication for a psychological disorder, they often can't get it because they don't have insurance or they don't know who to go to. So we basically set them up for failure. So I'm, I really wanted to give my students that perspective of not just the victim, which is often what we see if we watch these crime TV shows, right? Mm-hmm. It's There's this poor victim and they've been assaulted and we have to go get the bad guy. I also wanted to make them empathetic towards the person who has committed the crime. What are all the different factors that led to that? And what can we do to help that person, to better that person? And so that we don't continue to set them up for failure. And so that's kind of the message I try to deliver to my students is to look at it from both sides. And then, of course, they can make their own informed opinion. I don't want to tell my students what to think. I really just want to teach them how to think. And I, that, I believe that that means, okay, look at it from this perspective, and then I need you to flip the script and look at it from the other perspective, and then make your own educated decision. Thanks for sharing that and that personal story. That sounds very um, invasive. And were you a graduate student at this time when that happened? I was. Um, I had just started my doctorate. And um, this took about, I would say, two and a half years. Sure. And that also really shocked me that it would take so long and that this just continued to drag out. And so that was another problem that I had to think about. Why does this take so long? Because, again, when we watch these shows on TV, we think it happens very quickly. And it doesn't. And then I also had to learn about plea bargaining because I was told this person was going to strike a plea. I had no idea what that meant. And so when I started doing the research, I found out that the vast majority of things that we believe happen in a courtroom actually happen as a plea bargain where they never see a jury. And so I also felt very misled as someone who considered herself very privileged to be earning a doctorate that I was, I mean, completely uneducated about our our legal system. And I, I didn't want other students to to feel that way, or to have a run-in with the law and be so uneducated. I also wanted them to understand that, hey, there are some great things about our American justice system, and there are some not-so-great things about our American justice system. We, we can do better. Yeah, and I think it's impressive that you decided to empower yourself to move on towards the education route, but that's what you decided to do is look at well, what's really going on and how do I best inform myself? And maybe I'm not the only one that needs this information and awareness. And you're right. Like a lot of us may be ignorant to what are due processes in the systems of criminal law and, or many legal things in our society, to be honest. And I think that's really impressive that you decide to flip the script and say, no, I'm going to look at this more and understand this better and help others to make those decisions on their own. Thank you. Um, that's very kind of you to say. I just try to put myself in the, the seats of my students and think about if you could only learn one thing, what would it be? <laughs> and uh, I do tell my students on the first day in psych and law, if you learn nothing else from me, I need you to learn that if you're ever told that you're under arrest and you have the right to remain silent, you choose that right to remain <laughs> silent. Right. Right. Like I, I need you to take it. And I always have students that say, but that, that suggests that you're guilty. And I'm like, no. And we get into these really great discussions. 
And it takes me a little while to tell my students why I'm so passionate about psychology and law. And I do choose to share with them that I had a, uh, a very scary moment where I had a stalker. And that also, I think, kind of helps me build a rapport with students where, I mean, if I can be a victim of a crime but still have compassion for people that are incarcerated, well, what's stopping them from having that same compassion? I think that element of exposure and being vulnerable in front of your students does let them know um, we are all human and we have to deal with humanity and yes. some of the situations we come about. So I think that is definitely a, a good way to probably um, have them understand why it's important that you, what you're teaching, like here are the learning outcomes, but really here's what's really necessary for you to walk away from, from this course or this yes. lesson. I think that's brilliant. So that's great. Thank you. No. Your courses so you teach sure. are in law, but you did you study law or did that ever interest you when you were doing your PhD? Did you say, maybe I should go to the legal I system? Was, I was pretty interested in law. Um, when I started my doctorate, I became a member of um, ASNMSU. It's the Associated Students of New Mexico State University. And so we write legislation. We dealt with um, over a million dollar budget. Uh, we had a law book. We had committees. We tried to mimic the U.S. government as closely as possible. And uh, there were several moments where I really had to throw down and debate. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I really fell in love with it. And I will never forget that experience. I believe it made me um, very prepared, I guess, for, you know, defending my dissertation and also having good political discourse with others. And learning how to disagree with my colleagues without getting upset, without taking it personally and getting emotional about it. And uh, during those types of, you know, interactions with other student government officials, I really did consider getting into law. But the, the only thing that deterred me was, uh, was sparked that I didn't know was going to be sparked for teaching because I was assigned a Friday night intro to psychology course from 6 to 9 p.m. And I just absolutely loved it. So I would be on the student senate floor on Thursday nights, and then I would go teach on Friday nights. And I loved them both so much, but ultimately I knew that academia was really where I wanted to be. I wanted to touch as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And I think that's really beautiful about teaching is you don't even know what student out there is really inspired by what you have to say or the relationship that you have with them. And there's so many new opportunities every semester of these really great students just sitting right in front of you and who trust that you have this knowledge and that you're going to deliver it in a very safe environment. And just the idea of you know, 30, 60, 100 students at this one time just walking away and taking that information. It really keeps me going and it gets me out of bed every day. And I, I couldn't love my job any more than I do. No, that's great. And the impact that you don't know that you cause until many years after you've taught them is when they come back to you. Yeah. And go, Thanks for that time. And I was listening to that lecture. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, like it, it is. It's trial by fire. I really did feel prepared. It was just, hey, you have the knowledge. Go in there and do it. And <laughs> I feel also very lucky 
that I had a good support system with one of my um, dissertation advisors who absolutely loved teaching. So I had a couple of really good models. And I remember thinking back to my favorite classes and going, okay, what did, you know, Dr. Madsen do and how can I recreate that? And can I go talk to her? And she was wonderful, just giving me all these really great ideas. And so I think that also helped develop my love for teaching was that I really enjoy collaborating with people, especially people who know more than I do, which is a lot of people. (laughs) So sitting there and also getting to be the student is another thing that I really love about teaching is I can read these articles and I can meet with these experts in pedagogy and I can just kind of suck it up like a sponge. And then I get to try it in my classroom. It's like a new experiment every day. It's true. The secret to good teaching is continued learning. I think you're right. I agree with this completely. And um, I think some of the things it sounds like you've picked up along the way, because your classes sound really interactive, and I'll get you to talk a little bit about those in just a second. But um, if you want to share a little bit more about whether you've been mentored or how did you pick up those teaching skills, because no one tells you about classroom management or how do you measure learning outcomes or how, what's a, besides um, a good interactive lesson, like the, what's the point of the lesson? Like, how do you get that across to your students? Like, where do you think you picked up those kind of teaching tools or skill sets along the way? I was pretty lucky at um, New Mexico State University. They had a teaching academy. And it didn't matter if you were a graduate student, faculty, everyone sat in the same room. Everybody was equal. And so I decided I was going to take this semester-long teaching academy. And I learned a lot about learning outcomes, Bloom's taxonomy, developing an ironclad syllabus, and uh, also doing some basic classroom management. And when I finished that, I got a certificate And then, boom, I jumped into my first faculty job at Western Kentucky University. So I felt pretty prepared. Uh, But, of course, I'm sure, as you know, you're never fully prepared. (laughs) Your students are always going to be this different mix of personalities and knowledge and, you know, background. And so I've also made a lot of mistakes. And I I admitted that in my keynote because I think that's important that we don't always talk about the great things we've done. We talk about the things that we've, you know, completely dropped the ball on. And there are moments where I think back and I go, I demanded too much for my students or I should have been more flexible here. So I try to really keep note of the decisions I make. And through that, I've learned to try to do as much as I can through email Because as professors, you know this, we're so busy. We have so many students to keep track of. We've got research we're working on. We're trying to collaborate with others. And so I could tell a student, oh, yeah, sure. You've you've warned me that you have to be gone for this appointment. Then we can extend this due date. And I'll forget I had that conversation. And I've had to start realizing, Crystal, you can't always keep track of everything. You need to put this in writing (laughs) so you can sit down and before you might get a little upset or you discredit somebody, you search through your email and you realize, yep, I agree to that. And that's really saved me from putting my foot in my mouth a lot of times (laughs) is just stopping and searching my email and saying, oh, yep, I did say that here. Absolutely. We're going to, we're going to do what I promised we're going to do. 
And I've also learned the hard way that I need to have a really ironclad syllabus where everything I ask of my students is ready to go on the first day. That has saved me a lot of grief. And I've heard, you know, several of my students say, you know what, I knew you expected this and I just didn't do it. So this is my fault. And I go, wow, like you're very responsible. You are an adult. You understand that you did have this due on this date. But if I were someone who just kind of willy nilly was unorganized and just said, you know what, we're going to have a paper due in two weeks, then who do I get upset with? And I've also had to learn that if the majority of the students aren't, you know, at least on a normal distribution, then that's a problem with my teaching. If everyone's getting an A, then I'm not rigorous enough. If everybody's failing, then I'm not doing my job. I'm not making this approachable. I'm not breaking down the information the way that I should. So I've also tried to do a lot of uh, self-reflection. And I go through all of my teaching evaluations every semester. And I look at the good. And I also look at the bad. And I think about, okay, what, what can I do differently? Um, the student doesn't seem like they're happy. And is that because they just didn't like me? Or is it because I actually could do something different so that this doesn't happen again? And sometimes, yeah, my feelings get hurt. I'm going to admit it <laughs> because I put so much of myself into my teaching. But, I mean, we're, we, we can always do better. By no means am I perfect. And my students definitely keep me humble, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> Yeah, and if you're hurt, that just says you care about what you're doing. And Yeah, that's that, a great way to spend that. Thank you. <laughs> it, no, it really does. And, like, I, like you, probably take – I have a lot of students, um, and so I, I ask for feedback a lot from them. I ask, like, why are they coming into the class? What do they hope to learn from the course? Because I want to know, like, what their motivation is. And I, like you, look at their feedback. And it's, it's hard sometimes because I have demand expectations, but setting them out, like you said – being um, consistent, offering expectations early and sticking to them are actually help you better as instructor and communication and workflows and what you've said and your follow through. I, I agree. Simple things that no one ever tells um, new yes. instructors, but it's really important. That I wish, I wish we could, you know, have this group where we mentor incoming faculty and say, these are the big lessons I've learned how about you run with it? Or if you don't want to, fine, but I still want to offer you this information. And I'm hoping to do that at, at UNT. I want to have pretty much an open door policy for not just students, but also faculty, teaching fellows. If there is anything I can help with or if there's anything I can learn from them, which will be a lot. So. I think you're right. Like I like this idea. More of this needs to happen because – Teaching and learning is not the same. It's still shifting and evolving. Our student population is changing. And the needs and demands of what we ask of a university or college degree isn't the same as when we went to school. Like, there's no way. No, yep. Someone's going to come to me and say, what are you going to do with that history major? And I was like, well, I don't know, maybe law school, maybe something else. I don't know. But now they want to know. They're like, what is my income? Where am I going to go career-wise? What am I going to be doing? And there's different yep. pressures on that for teaching. Yeah. And they're, you know, I, I give them a lot of credit. I know a lot of people are saying, oh, the millennials. Um, 
I think that learning is learning. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think because you were born with technology in your hands that your brain has to learn it in a different way. I just think it has to be me. And as a professor, I have to kind of switch and take myself out of, well, the way, this is the way I did it. And I think that's also really great about this generation of students is it forces me to remove myself from, well, this is the way I always learned. Well, that doesn't mean that's how everybody learns. And so that really got me into this whole gamification mindset of, hey, what's one thing that we never get tired of? What's something that I want to do for fun that, that also teaches me? And so my brother, luckily, when we were kids, had a Nintendo, and then I got addicted to Tetris. And, and as I aged, I bought a PlayStation just so I could have rock band and learn drums. And it just kind of started to occur to me, this is something that would work in the classroom. And there was actually a name for it. <laughs> right. And it's not an age or generation thing at all. Because no, everyone exactly. likes that's this. that's what I love about it. Right. Yep. You are correct. Everyone loves a good game. Everyone loves to be surprised. Everyone loves a story that takes you into this place where you learn something new about yourself. And I was even doing this before Nintendo came out. Um, I don't know if you remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Oh, yeah. I like this. Yeah. But I loved, loved, loved those. And this whole idea of, oh, I actually have a, I have a choice here. I, I have a path. And I, I also started looking into how do you do that for students? And everything just came back to gamification. But I also have to give credit to things like the Jigsaw Classroom and the flipped classroom, and doing a lot of collaborative learning, which I was really lucky to experience while I was getting my undergrad. And so all of these little things just kind of led to this really nice package of, oh, gamification does all of these things. And it's super flexible, and you don't have to have technology either. And I like that you have this element where you don't, you don't have to have an app you don't have to have a computer, but that's the one negative aspect I believe that is gamification is it is connected to this idea that you have to have technology. And that can scare a lot of people away. It, I'm and glad you brought I, that up because a lot of gamifying something doesn't mean it has a hardware, software, or a device at all. Because um, one example yeah. that you gave that I like and I, and I do with my courses is uh, your point system. And it's kind of like the idea mm. of um, people are wearing a Fitbit or tracking their steps or whatnot. They can decide to level up their experience or earn more in points or in their courses, let's say. Um, I'd like that you do this and offer a point spread. And if you want to share a little bit about that, that'll give an example of, I think, non-technical gaming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's great. Fat points are awesome. And you can easily do it in your syllabus. So let's say that maybe you offer, I don't know, five points for a quiz. Why not make it 10? <laughs> this immediately gives the idea to students that, oh, wow, I have all of these opportunities to make up for something that I might have failed on in the beginning. So maybe they missed the first quiz because they aren't quite connected yet with your schedule. 
Well, I can sit there and go, hey, look, you have 800 more points to earn. Missing this one quiz is not going to completely slam your grade. In fact, you're barely going to notice it if you do the rest of what I'm asking you to do. And I give them opportunities every week to earn points, whether that's as an individual or in a collaborative group. And I've realized, well, if you want students to do something, you probably need to connect points with that particular task. Just expecting students to read because it's good for them doesn't mean they're going to do their reading. (laughs) They have all these other things that they have to do in their lives. So when I started connecting a weekly reading quiz before they came in to the classroom, reading just shot through the roof grades got better and students were happy that they always had an opportunity to earn points. And then when they show up in my classroom, I always have something for them to do. And points are always connected with those tasks that they do in the classroom, which I find encourages them to actually be there because, Hey, if I show up, I have a cool conversation with my group and we do this activity. I express my opinion and I get some points for it. Great. So I'm always trying to reinforce my students to read and to collaborate, to to discuss these things, because with that comes points. And with points comes your grade. And the more points you earn, the better you do. Yeah, points is that carriage on the stick, right? But the real activity that they do within that, like yours is reading. My points were like doing extra pieces of an assignment. So I have some students that want to go beyond and they create some digital artifact, a video, um, a little quick speech for me. And they're like, actually, I got a lot of value out of that. Then I applied that to what I did in my work. And I was like, great, that's actually better than the points. But the points mean something to you. That's fine. And I think you're right. It's the process of um, engaging them further in the content in other ways is what we hope them for them to do. But points matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, points do matter. And it's easy to fatten up those points you just I mean add a zero right (laughs) it's the same percentage but it gives your students this you know false belief that oh my gosh there's thousands of points this is going to be awesome well great if that's how you feel about my syllabus then more power to you let's add that zero (laughs) I agree they they love those zeros um the other thing you mentioned and you said the element of surprise and story and one thing that I like you that you do is you kind of, um, in the topics that you do in law and um, psychology, you do some myth busting a lot with your students. Mm -hmm. I often feel guilty because in psychology, it's kind of easy to do this myth busting thing because there's a lot of misconceptions I believe in my field. Um, such as a little disclaimer, (laughs) but something I've also learned along the way is that if a student reads that people stereotype, they'll go, oh, yeah, I knew that. But if I actually get them to stereotype and then I teach them about it, they pay attention. They're a little bit shocked. They're also kind of hurt that they just did the one thing that they thought everybody else does. And I find that that really gets students to sit up and pay attention. It's, oh, I'm not just reading about this imaginary person who stereotypes. I actually am this person who stereotypes. Or the example I gave at the uh, UNT um, Forum on Teaching and Learning was eyewitness identification, where people think, 
oh, I'm going to be really good at this because I already know where things can go wrong. I've just sat through this whole lecture and I've read this whole chapter on how we can really mess this up. So I'm not going to be susceptible to being really bad at eyewitness identification. The one thing I really like to use in my classroom is a before and an after, a pre and a post. I want to get your attitudes before we do this little experiment. And then I want you to give me your attitudes after we've done this experiment, because I need you to also pay attention to what did you think you knew before and how has that changed after? And I believe that really makes the learning experience more valuable to students because they can see how they really have shifted because of something that they've experienced in the classroom. I think your application, though, of that concept is probably more powerful than anything because I remember you did that eyewitness. You showed us different headshots, different people, and then many people had the false conception of, I'm pretty sure that's who it was, but I was wrong or I was way off on this and I would have put someone in jail. Like the idea of false identification happens. And I think it it was a really powerful example and exercise that you actually walked us through. So I could see your learners benefiting from this as well. Thank you. Yeah. I, and I love the look on my students' faces because before we start, they're like, Oh, this is going to be easy. Right. (laughs) And then as we get into it, they're looking around, they're looking at other people's sheets. And I even noticed that at the forum was faculty (laughs) were looking at other people's sheets and I'm like, what are you doing? They're not going to save you. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, sometimes I think as academics, we forget what that's like. We forget what it's like to go, oh, I didn't have the right answer. Because students are always coming to us for the right answer. And I really love also being in the position where I, I have to say I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or I have to admit I've done that and I didn't do it well. So it was really great to see that faculty were so open to that type of a classroom experience, because if it's working for you, if you're able to learn and here you are, the professor, can you imagine what it could do for your students? And opening like up and saying, I've done this myself really says something. And I think that's the misconception that people think when they're teaching um, in academia, that they have to be the expert in the knows all. No, you have to cultivate more questions from your students and maybe some other answers or maybe some inquiries about something else related to what you're teaching that that's really where you're instigating the learning I think I agree absolutely and I actually assign students discussion questions so we will have the chapter we will go through an interactive lecture and then we will watch documentary and I'll say okay Next time you see me, you have to bring in a three-part discussion question. And all, all of the students in your group are also going to be responsible for a discussion question. You're going to pick the best one and you're going to answer it. Because I've also learned that my students have really amazing questions, things I never would have thought of. And I just get so thrilled going through these discussion questions where you can tell they're really engaging in deep learning. And I also don't want to fail in a way that I don't give my students the opportunity to ask the good questions, because that's, in my opinion, another huge piece of lifelong learning is when you go out and you get a career, you're going to have to critically think. And that includes asking what the problem is, not just giving the right answer. You have to also ask the right question. 
So really allowing students to have those great questions, you're absolutely right. It's a huge component of learning. And I, li- I like the moments where I say, you know what? I don't know. I've never thought of that before. And that drives me to go home and do the research and try to come up with either a decent answer or say, you know what? No one's looked at this before. Have, have you thought about maybe going into research, wanting to be the person who asks the great questions? I think that's great. Um, the final piece of what you do, and I think you brought it up as we t- were talking, where it was the idea of telling a story and giving more narrative to um, what your discipline and what your field is, is looking at in terms of perception, social perceptions, identity, um, legal aspects with psychology. Um, so the story is really important, and we think that's relevant too. And we didn't know if there was a certain story or an article or book that kind of resonated with you lately or a recent uh, read podcast that you heard that you want to share with our listeners that they might want to go check out. Yeah, so I love Radiolab so much and also Hidden Brain. These are the two podcasts that I find myself constantly going back to because they have this beautiful way of educating you through a person's life. Um, through someone who's real, someone who you can look up. And um, there's also a book called Social Animal by David Brooks. And Mm -hmm. it's this great piece of, it's this great novel where he takes these fictional characters and he develops this beautiful story about how they come to be using biology, psychology, and sociology. So as you're reading about these fictional characters, you're also being very educated because he works in these facts and figures and he talks about how your neurons fire and how oxytocin gets released when you fall in love. And you just keep wanting to read this story because you're connected to the characters, but you're learning all all of these beautiful things about them that actually have caused them to be connected. And I find those types of things very inspiring in that if I want to tune into this every day, if I want to pick up this book and I I can't put it down, then maybe that's how I should be reaching out to my students. So I am really constantly looking for these really great stories. And so, yeah, Social Animal by David Brooks is a big one. And then I'm constantly tuning into Radiolab and Hidden Brain. They're great. And then I find that they do a lot of the work for me because they talk about history, they talk about great scientists, and they also talk about everyday people that are very um, applicable to basic things that, you know, students really want to know. So I find I don't have to do a lot of work thanks to podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a big fan of those two podcasts as well, but I'll check out the book and add all of them to our note for listeners. So thank you for sharing those. And thinking about um, what lies ahead for you in upcoming projects and developments, uh, what are you excited about that's percolating for you in the future that's coming up on your radar? Yeah, um, I'm working on a textbook, and that's been all-consuming. So most of what I've been reading right now are journal article after journal article to the point that they're all mushing together. I (laughs) can't remember what one article said, right? Uh, but it's really putting me in touch again with intro psychology, something I haven't taken 
oh my gosh, since 1997. That's when I took intro to psychology. It's been a long time. Uh, so that's, that's really what I'm doing. Probably I devote about, ooh, I'm trying to write 10 to 15 pages on average a day. So I'll crank out, I'd say, you know, six to eight hours of writing and literature review. Mm-hmm. But I also want to collect data from my psychology of the offender class here at UNT so I can compare it to the data I've collected in Kentucky to see if uh, the same shifts in attitudes are happening in Texas with my students as they were happening in Kentucky. Because there's always a question of, you know, what's happening with the demographics in your classroom and how is that connected to this shift? So I'm going to hopefully be able to get that research um, off the ground so I can make a pretty decent comparison between the two sets of students. Great. We'll both, both sound great, great and involved. So you won't be bored this fall, sounds. No. <laughs> I'm already, you know, got a lot on my plate, which is wonderful. And then I get to work with CLEAR so I can put together workshops and help them do that for, their, for teaching fellows in August. And I'm going to do a couple of workshops at the new college at UNT Frisco for faculty to try to help develop better ways that students can have interactive and collaborative experiences in the classroom. Great. Side note for listeners, CLEAR is the Center for Learning Enhancement and Redesign at UNT. It's not a UNT podcast, but we're quite UNT proud. So before we wrap up, is there anything we did not get to chat about today or things you wanted to mention before we close out? No, um, I think you asked, you asked some really great questions and I thank you for really wanting to have this time with me to ask those really great questions and giving me this opportunity. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Crystal. Um, we are more than gracious for your time, your willingness to share your openness for, um, offering what your experiences have been personally, professionally. There's a broader context to what we do. And I think, telling the story of what we do and sharing these conversations, ideas are really what this is about, obviously over wine. And uh, we're glad that you can join us. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great. For others who are listening, I just want to wrap up and say, if you want um, a voice, a story, an idea, a question, or random wine fact brought up on this uh, podcast, let us know. Hashtag InVinoFab. We always take love and messages at the email InVinoFabulum at gmail.com. And you can always tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Remember, in wine there is story, InVinoFabulum. Cheers.